Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-host, Uber Markler. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Everyone stop for a moment. Mackie's here before Phil. Well, I think we've all died and gone to hell. I mean, what? No, that happened a couple years ago, didn't it? Welcome to the 306th episode of Polycast. I'm Dan Q, and I'm joined by fellow regular co-hosts, Makalua. I probably need some more coffee, because I'm still half asleep. The main team. We're all high on life. Mega Bears fan. Yay, Dan is back to keep the sheep in line. What do you call a sheep? (laughs) He may have just been referring to himself, Mackie. But sheep is plural. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you assuming sheep is plural? Well, if he was going to refer to himself, this sheep in line, you see. Oh, did he use something that made it necessarily plural? I just said the sheep. Yeah. Yeah, that's up, up to interpretation. That, that could obviously be singular or plural, but Mackie assumed plural. I wonder why. It's interesting. Just protest too much sheep. or something, perhaps. I thought the plural was sheeple. Yes. <laughs> this, yeah. this was a Rorschach test. And speaking of sheeples, wait, no. It's uh, returning guest co-host Uber Marklar. I'm Dan with fewer puns and more snark. <laughs> might be a little too overgeneral, but we'll go with it. Well, you forgot not Canadian. Well, yeah, I mean, no, I'm from a real now. country that's actually in Civ games, so... Oh. True. Yeah, so just a second, I'm going to get on the phone with the Holy Roman Empire. Because, you know, that's how we know that Civs are real, because they appeared in Civ. Now, Civ is just an abstraction of history, therefore any Civ that's in civilization is just an abstraction. Fact... Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, if you want to be technical, that's true. Uh, the uh, civilizations are just human constructs in objective reality. They weren't actually like that. This is how we define it. Wait, you're telling me that Gandhi didn't throw nukes around like candy? I'm just saying, like, Gandhi was there, and there might have been nukes, but it's up to interpretation that that was technically we India. Can't, we can't prove one way or the other whether or not they were thrown around like candy. <laughs> Spring patch notes video. Luckily, a few people in the Symphonetics forums summarize this for you. You don't have to listen to the stiffness if you don't want to. Yeah, all that really matters is more turtles, and, well, I like turtles, so. (laughs) Turtles are pretty great. Yeah, there are more turtles. Cities with the same religion will gain loyalty. Cities with opposite religions will lose loyalty. So now you have even more reason to use that Cassus belly when somebody starts spreading it to you. I'm calling it now. There is going to be a threat about is founding religion useful now. This is going to be uh, very entertaining in the future. <laughs> yeah, this is something that is like, why was this not in the release of Rise and Fall? Like, how did they miss that? Yeah, well, particularly this same religion gaining loyalty. Why was that not there? Right. Well, both directions. It just makes sense. Yeah. Although, to be fair, like, loyalty is one of those things in the game that it's vexing, but it it actually forces you to make some choices regarding it. So, Mm -hmm. in that sense, it's a good mechanic, and we'll see how they tweak it. I also want to see how they tweak it in terms of what if you don't have a religion yourself. Right. Neither here nor there? Yeah, that was my question. 
I would assume it would be the majority religion. Are you talking about if you don't even have a majority religion or if you don't have a founded religion? You didn't found a religion yourself, then what? Yeah, I would assume it would apply to whatever your majority religion is. But until you have a majority religion, I would assume it would probably just have no effect. Hopefully it's not you just lose loyalty in all your cities because that would kind of suck. Yeah, that would be yeah, kind of bad. Plenty of, yeah, plenty of players don't found a religion as part of their strategy. So, yeah, I would hope that would not... Uh, and I think the most sensible way to implement this would be on a city to city anyway. Like each city is putting pressure on another city. Yeah. One of so, the things that I would like to see to go alongside this would be some social policies regarding this, like things like religious tolerance or secularism that make it so that the penalties for opposing religions would maybe be reduced or nullified. Yeah, tolerance of heathens and heretics, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That was <laughs> Even nice. more evil references. I, I can't Although, imagine. Is this a founder thing? Like it's not clear to me. If you both have opposite religions, are you ju- both just inflicting double pressure or something? Like, how does that work? We haven't seen the math behind it yet. Yeah, we'll have to see that in a game in progress, probably to figure that out. So, like, what state religion you're running is what matters relative to your own city. Is it like that? Yeah, it sounds to me like probably the latter. Okay. I mean, at least that's a clear delineation, so I'd be okay with going that route, because otherwise it could get complicated. But if it's just based on your state religion and whether your city has it or a different one, I could see that. Of course, then you should still be more or less sensitive to pressure, depending on what's actually pressing you. Like, it would be awkward if you have a Hindu city and your state religion is Catholic, but a city is pressuring that city double or something. That would just be weird. Like, in that case, I would expect it to have no modifier, but we'll see. Yeah, I I could maybe see that them having something like where rival cities of the same religion maybe apply more pressure to your cities that have their religion, right? So if you're like next to Arabia and they've got Islam, then maybe their Islamic cities are applying more pressure to your Islamic cities. Yeah, that would make the most sense. I could see maybe something like that, but what you just said, I think would probably not make much sense or work very well. It doesn't, but like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm just worried we're going to get stuff like that. I, well, well. I guess we'll find out when we play it. Is the <laughs> yeah. is this patch live yet, or is this? No, patch is not live yet, which is unusual that we got this first look video before the patch. And then it was depublished, and then it was published the next day aside. But it's been more than a week, right? We're recording this on the 21st of April. It's more than a week that this was reposted, and we still don't have the patch yet, which is atypical to have this much of a delay between the update and the patch notes. Usually it's when we record this episode, hey, there was a developer update video, but there's no point in talking about it because here are the full patch notes. So I don't know if that's intentional. They just want us to try to stir the pot about the good things and the bad things and all the things that aren't included. (laughs) Well, it looks overall like a good patch. I'm totally on board with trying to make religion more relevant. Oh, yeah. Especially since, like, what, like a third to half of the civs in the game have unique powers revolving around religion? If you don't have a religion yourself, and you're worried about losing loyalty in your city, then you might actually care about the religious spread within your city and the distribution of that, and who's spreading that to you, and might want to be able to say, hmm, maybe I should go ahead and construct a holy site so I can get some inquisitors with the faith that I'm probably already generating incidentally, whether it's through a relation with a religious city-state, for example, or some wonder that you've constructed or something, even if it's just that one faith a turn from God King, that you can then go and get rid of these things. So I could definitely see it having a positive as well as a negative impact on those people who choose not to engage in religion. And by that, I mean not founding a religion itself. So long as there's a decent counterplay and there's clear delineation, that's fine. 
Yeah, and even just getting to an Inquisitor is a significant investment in religion because it's not just plop a holy site. You've got to have, a, what is it, a temple? So you're talking about holy site plus several buildings. And then enough faith generated. And the associated civics to get to those buildings. Yeah, and then enough faith to actually buy the dang things. So it's not like just, oh, you plop a holy site in one of your cities and problem solved. The most obvious problem solved is going to be adopting the religion in question if you're not founding on. Assuming it works decently, that would be the route to go. This would be a problem in like a three-way lull. But um, for one-on-one situations, you could just adopt the religion. And then I would hope that there's no loyalty modifier that's significant at that point. Yeah, as long as, you know, city in that situation, if you haven't founded a religion, it's not, hey, you know, (laughs) you're gaining loyalty as in, okay, they're now following the religion of another Civ, but it's not that they want to join that other Civ. (laughs) It's just that you're not losing loyalty because a majority of your cities have that. And yeah, you may then decide, hmm, maybe in a three-way situation, you want to try to wedge yourself between the two Civs. I want to curry the favor of this Civ, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to construct holy sites and hopefully have at least one city that has their religions. Then I can construct, say, the missionary in that city so it would spread the appropriate religion. Don't want to accidentally mess that up after all that investment on top of it. I just really enjoyed the notion of I'm going to construct holy sites with the notion of removing religion by constructing inquisitors. I, I just, you know, it's just humorous somehow and very twisted. I mean, I kind of always would build like one or two holy sites in my cities, even when I wasn't specifically going for religious play. And that was usually just because I don't disable the religious victory. So I always want to have at least the ability to build missionaries and inquisitors on the off chance that some AI is like running away with the religious game. And I need to be able to build missionaries or inquisitors of my own to make sure that he doesn't just win the game. Otherwise, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, other than, you know, take them over with your mighty army. Well, right. <laughs> Just the usual to, answer. <laughs> do you have to control your original capital to win the religious victory? Hmm. I don't remember that being a condition for it, actually. Like, unless you just wipe them out of the... Well, yeah, if you planet, take them off then, the board, then they can't win, for sure. Yes. That, I don't think yeah. it's a simple matter of just rushing to their capital and capturing it before they no. convert that last city. You've got to wipe them out completely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still useful, I would say, to have the ability to build missionaries and inquisitors already, if for nothing else, than to prevent some other player from just winning a religious victory. But this loyalty Keep thing, I think, mind, will make it more important. You can just declare war on whoever is trying to spread to you and kill their units with a military unit. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. And unless they changed it since I've bothered with this instead of just killing the religious people first, I'm pretty sure that that also reduces the religious presence in surrounding cities. So that's not significant. And the more you're beating somebody down, the fewer holy sites they're going to have, the less faith they're going to generate, the less they're going to be capable of replacing things that you're killing this way. So as long as you're careful about that, it shouldn't be a problem in terms of who wins religious victory conditions. Although they can certainly be obnoxious with the loyalty pressure if you're not prepared for it. Especially if you're the only holdout, then you can't just adopt their religion or let them do it because you'll lose. Then, yeah, you're going to have to really mind loyalty pressure then. But that shouldn't be a problem, probably, if if it's that late in the game. Just burn everything. Maybe you and another player on the map are the holdouts against this religion and are concerned about a religious victory. So therefore, it's an emergency. Something about joint war. Yeah, now when they come to you for a joint war, they have to have a casus belly. This can't Finally. be just randomly. Yeah, this is not random out of the middle. Hey, want to go fight this guy? No, you got to got a reason. But you can also join in on wars if you have a cast belly now. 
Now, hold, so, hold on. One point of clarification. Did they specify that you need to have a Casus Belli to declare the joint war, or just that you're subject to the normal warmonger penalties if you don't have the Casus Belli? Well, one person says you have to, the other person says you can, so I'm not sure, but you can use it as the basis for a joint war. Yeah, I watched the video and I kind of got the impression that you needed to have the Casus Belli as a prereq yeah. for declaring a joint war, but I wasn't entirely clear on that. So I wasn't sure if any of you, you know, knew. Yeah, I'm not clear on uh, it no. either. I hope it's true, but I, I'm not clear on it. But being to jump into the war already in progress with your allies, that does help too. And you get the benefits from the Casus Belli. Yeah, in the video itself, lead designer Anton Stranger says joint wars may now be declared using a Casus Belli, which by the language choice means that it's an option. It doesn't mean that it has to be. The only thing that the denouncement from B must be at least from one player. Right. So if a player contacts you to, into a joint war, so long as they have denounced, or heck, even as long as you have denounced, then you can both go into that joint war. You both don't have to have denounced that player. And I assume this works with the other Casus Belli as well, besides just the Denounce, right? Are you talking about the Golden Age to Arms Casus Belli? Yeah, like stuff like that, and the Protectorate Wars, and things like that, that don't require a Denouncement, but just require that you have the Civic that unlocks it. Based on the wording in the video, there needs to have been the Denouncement from at least that one player. You can, of course, go into the war yourself, but if you haven't Denounced that player also... Or if the other player that you want to join the joint war with you, even if you do a call to arms, Cassius Belly, they would have had to denounce it. Just because based on the language from Anton, that there has to be denounced from at least one player. So I don't think that makes a difference. Yeah. Either way, it's nice that the joint wars are no longer a loophole to basically bypass warmonger penalty. Speaking of which, the, the fact that you can join allies now, they better mean that you can like join a city-state that you were suzerain of and protect it prior to being conquered without having to do an offensive war declaration that gives you warmonger points. Come on now. Oh, I don't know about that. So there's no diplomacy screen for you to go into and with the city-states. I'm, I'm assuming that's where you... Yeah. <laughs> Here's yeah, an that's... opportunity to do something that should have been in there from the, like day one vanilla. <laughs> If you're yeah. suzerain you of something, like, losing, like four city states in the first twenty turns of the game. Yeah, and if yeah. you liberate, you lose all the envoys past uh, what you would get at the moment of liberation. And there's no good reason for this. Like the whole idea of being a suzerain of a nation it implies that you can protect them, and that does not mean let them get conquered and then declare war. That's not how that relationship works right. in any era, really. There might be a situation where it's like, actually, no, we're about to take this person out after 20 turns. You would like to join right now and get the benefits from that. I don't think so. I think you can just go ahead and clear yourself, but that's it's one of those things that you kind of decide for yourself. But if it's a couple turns in or it's like, man, this has been going on 20, 30 turns, this hasn't been going on, gaining the benefits from the Cassius Belly for the reduced warmonger penalty, then yeah, bring them on board. Why not? Or, hmm, I'm trying to create a favor of this sieve. I wish I'd declared on that AI. I think they're about to take them out. So uh, yeah, please, please let me join on the Cassius Belly and I will gain the warmonger penalty reduction. And you're also happier with me, because that would be a yay. You know, we declared war jointly on somebody. I'm also wondering if this allows you to invite more than one other player into a war in progress, because the joint wars are only two players against one. So I'm wondering mm -hmm. if the post-war invitation basically turns it into a joint war behind the scenes, so you cannot then go to a third party and invite them as well. I wonder. Or maybe the third parties have the option, like we as the human players do, to jump in. Maybe. If they already yeah. had enough reasons. Yeah, it's uh, there are definitely advantages where I would like to be able to say I would like both of these AIs to join me in a joint war. So the joint war has three partners, not just two from the beginning. Right. 
But as far as I can tell, there's no way to do that. No, so it's kind of cumbersome in a way because it's, you know, extra clicks. But at least maybe in theory it could be, okay, I'm Rome. I want Arabia and Spain to join in this war against Congo. I'm going to go talk to Arabia. We're going to declare together. And then afterwards, I'm going to go to the other seven and say, hey, why don't you join us as well and become the third party? Or does it have to be that that third party has to initiate that and say, hey, I want to join this joint war already in progress? Okay, I think it should work both ways. It would be much preferable to have just one click, like I contact you and you. Do you agree? Because then that can enter a situation where the one AI could say, I'll enter into a joint war with you, but I'm not going to join if that other person is also involved based on the relations that we're currently having. <laughs> Giggity. Right. But that might be a little too complicated for the AI, but not for the human player. On a tangential note, I am really disappointed and surprised that they don't have some kind of interface like that for the emergencies where you can like conference with the other eligible civs before accepting and rejecting to find out if they're going to accept or reject that's something that's frustrated me with rise and fall kind of a similar idea england gets a free unit now not just when settling the new continent but also building royal dockyards small buff first off one of the comments that i have seen is that okay so i just built the royal dockyard it's intended for ships I get a free land unit. Yeah, that's my problem. <laughs> ah. Yeah, that's why it's a small buff. It's also interesting that the dev specifically mentioned that England was nerfed too much by the patch. Like, both pre- and post-patch, England is still nowhere near the worst save in the game by any decent measure that I've seen. <laughs> so, like, okay, did you intend for them to be middle tier and now they're low tier? Like, uh, so you want to try and push them back to middle tier? I don't understand the rationale here. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Are there real or perceived the, the collective angst of people being vocal within the community about it is what gave Fraxis the notion that, oh, we should be paying attention to this sieve more than another sieve because all the people who are you know, pro-England were cranky and they said it loud enough and they said it quickly enough uh, together? I don't know. It almost kind of seems like, oh, this is what the mob is telling us. Yeah, can we not do this? Like, if, if somebody is presenting incoherent rationale, it doesn't matter how many people present it. It's still incoherent. The other thing that I picked up on this is that if you settle a city on a new continent, and when you build a royal dockyard, then that would mean, of course, that you would get a second free melee unit in such cities. And I don't even have to say, oh, well, Dan, are you just interpreting that? That's actually seen in the video. You see an English city settle clearly already on a new continent from the continent that the capital was settled on because there's a swordsman and then there must be like a you know a fast forward or something like that or they did some automation thing so that of course instantly you see the royal dockyard built in you know this size one city that was just settled and now they've got a red coat but again i think the bigger thing is okay you're settling on the continent if it's on the coast maybe that free unit should be like a free naval melee unit. And if it's not on the coast and you're settling on a new continent, then okay, then it can be a land unit to go along with, if I'm constructing the Royal Dockyard, then yes, please give me another free melee unit that's naval that's current to the era that I currently am in. Yeah, I'd be okay with the settling the city being a land unit, but the one that you get from the dockyard, I think should probably be a naval unit. Yeah, it just to my head, that makes more sense. I built a dockyard, I get a marine? What? I, I thought I was getting a boat. Well, it turns into a boat when it goes in the water, so... That doesn't count. <laughs> Transmutation. Just it kind of does. Embarked. Problem there solved. You go. There you go. <laughs> it's ready to Problem go. Problem solved. You're in a boat, but it's not a fighty boat. Your boats have defensive strength based on air, so yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, no, that uh, land melee unit is just, you know, <laughs> sitting on the dock. Of the bay. No, Dan. (laughs) 
I know where that was going. Stop right there. <laughs> you see, kids, there was this song. Yeah. <laughs> While we're on things getting tweaked. It says, <laughs> generic balance adjustments to social policies and governments. But there's also Shonduk and Magnus's abilities. Which is like, uh-oh. Yeah, specifically the first, which of course is the plus 100% yields from plot harvest and feature removals in the city. Yeah, what a surprise. They're going to change uh-huh. that. Actually, hold on <laughs> clarification. They said the first promotion, right? Starting ability, is that that is considered a promotion, right? Yes. So that is what they're talking about? I think so. I hope so. If you think about the most powerful things Magnus can do, the reason he's chosen so commonly amongst the top, if not the top, in most cases, advisors, you're not thinking about other things. It's probably that. Probably. <laughs> yeah, it's just I got a little bit confused because when I first watched the video, I was not thinking of the chopping ability. I was thinking of one of those first two promotions that you get to take when you promote him. I admit that's what so, it sounds like, but I would like. Yeah. Mm, it, so just, I was like, it wouldn't make sense to nerf something else. Yeah, I was like, mind. why are you nerfing those? Those aren't the thing that are powerful. And then, yeah, I'm like, okay, I guess they are talking about that first ability. I guess maybe technically that counts as a promotion, even though he starts with it. Yeah. yeah. Also, not only is that the thing that the community has been talking about, but it's also, as you say, open to interpretation. Which two things are you talking about? So it's really not telling us much of anything. Yeah, and I don't think they said what they're changing it to, right? No, no, they didn't name it. They didn't name it, didn't say what it currently is. No, didn't anything like that. Lots of teases in this video. Well, fair enough. This is getting us to talk about it, right? And that's... I guess, yeah. <laughs> As for what's going to be happening with Sondonk... Mm. Considering we've all noticed Korea is kind of a little too good at research. Uh... Or they might just be doing something like changing yields. Like maybe instead of the science for, what is it, mines, maybe it gives you like an extra production or a gold or culture or something. Yeah, but then that kind of backs down on the flavor of the sieve that they were trying to get, though. Well, like, true, admit, but if mean you, for it to be science, but if the consensus <sighs> is that they're too good at science, they would still be good at science because you plop down a Sewan and you automatically get like what is it, a four or five modifier? I mean, that's still good. They're still going to jump ahead really early in the game, so it's not like <laughs> changing the yield of the mine bonus is going to make them not a scientific sieve anymore. Yeah, and it sounds like they're going after what we've got right now, which is the plus five culture and plus five science in all cities with an established governor. Yeah, if they change the mind from science to culture, then you could even say that it's still kind of scientific because it lets you progress along the culture tree a little faster, too, which is basically a second tech tree. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah, there's also the uh, fixed AI yield stable. So now they fix the thing so they'll actually go after the right stuff, like the guy pointed out. Yeah, and which is described as the quote unquote blunder in the video. By Anton. Oopsies. <laughs> Episode 303, we talked about that. That was uh, messing with the priorities of the game's artificial intelligence because somebody did not spell yield correctly. Uh-huh. I enjoyed that the added comment from Anton was, This addition was initially added to help the AI prioritize similarly to how we've seen players prioritize. Yet it was not clear if it was in the game from the beginning. So when they say, see how players prioritize, are they talking about internal testers? Question number one. And if it was initially added to help the AI prioritize, was then it working as intended? I like that Dan made sure that he differentiated internal testers as opposed to the end market, which are the external testers, though. That's that's yeah. cute. <laughs> yeah. The internal testers may have had different priorities than the actual people playing the game after release. Oh, no. So the, the I'm making the point the that the people monitor. playing the game are the external testers. Oh, oh, I see. <laughs> right, well, the yeah, but we've known that since, I don't yeah. know, what, the last 20 years? Yeah, pretty much. 
We love you guys, but all Theranoxes are early access games now. I also couldn't resist using the phrase working as intended because Anton used that phrase, that they're now fixed as of this patch so that they're quote-unquote working as intended. Yeah, we'll see. Well, we'll find out. I don't care which developer makes it. I actively distrust that statement first, and then they can prove that they're actually working as intended. Their intentions give you a sense of pride and accomplishment. It's okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I enjoyed Anton's added point that we're seeing a general all-around improvement in AI scores. And I'm thinking, but just because you have a high score doesn't necessarily mean you're winning the game. So is that really an improvement? Well, really, Dan? I'm going to remember that next MP game. (laughs) They added more late-game historic moments. So you can end up with not having going into Dark Age at the end of the game and being stuck in a Dark Age at the end of the game, because that's always fun. One of them was National Parks, which is a good addition. I mean, National Parks are so rare, that could almost be a victory condition. (laughs) At this point, yeah. Even playing with Australia and that bonus is still very hard to find them. The video shows the historical timeline, and you get plus five era score, but that is for having the first national park in the world. So I expect once you create your own national park, if it's not the first, then it would be something less than that, like maybe a point or two less. In the video, that's turn 193, by the way. And then on turn 194 in the game, admittedly, don't know if they were playing from the beginning or as an advanced start or what the game speed is or anything like that. The finishing all buildings in the Aerodrome District, though, plus four? Uh, I wouldn't finish building all the buildings in the Aerodrome District for the era score. I would finish building it because I want to increase my air capacity because it's the one Aerodrome District that I've got in my Empire that can reach my target still. Do they have a similar era score for completing all the buildings in all the other districts? No. I wonder if they do, and this is just the one that they're mentioning as an example. Yeah, that one stood out to me as kind of weird, because I was like, did they have that for the other districts already, and they just didn't do it for the aerodrome, or is this like a totally new thing? And I also read that as, oh, so the AI, artificial intelligence, is unlikely to get this, because even if they construct an aerodrome district, they don't do anything with it. So... Yay, error score for me and no AI. And so, yes, we'll have the full list of changes uh, once the update goes live. And then, of course, we also get a chance to play it. So hopefully on the next episode, we'll be able to talk about this in more detail and answer some of the questions that we have, plus whatever else they're putting into the update that they didn't even address. Because we saw it before with the other update, the March update. They didn't talk about absolutely everything in the video that they were including. So we shall see. It's all good. Hopefully it all works well. On the last episode, there was conversation about forts applying loyalty pressure, and then it, I guess not surprisingly, became an extended conversation on Sif Fanatic Center about forts in general. And I've given the introduction to this topic to someone who was heavily involved in that aspect of the conversation. Well, yeah, I mean, we're just discussing some aspects of how forts are currently useful in-game, could be useful in-game, and then a little bit of the actual history of use of forts, plus the continuing thing of Firdox would allow the zone of control in Civ 6, which... (laughs) 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 It was mostly just me trolling Jusane, to be fair. (laughs) You would do that? No, of course not. Yeah, they uh, they apparently apply more bonus than we said on the show with the uh, plus 10 defense. So that's quite good. Quite good. If you're posting up in there. 
there was a comment from Legalized Freedom, and this, so I quote unquote did appear in the last episode. It was an archive segment from last year, uh, <laughs> and that was whether or not a pillaging action should be required to clear air units from an aerodrome district. It was recorded for episode 285, which was in July of last year, and I and former regular co-host Madgen had completely divergent views on that. Where my position really. I know. It's, it's, it's almost like that's what usually happened on this show. And my position had been that, no, it shouldn't be automatic. And his view was that it should be automatic. And the condensed version a bit here is that legalized freedom was siding with my view. That so that's why we're talking about it. <laughs> I'm actually surprised it got any comment at all in the thread, because it was a very short conversation, which itself was just kind of uh, brought up topic, a brought-up thought within an extended conversation that I carved out a a separate topic for, that he said there's still military units, so they should still have a defense however low, and need to be attacked at least. Air units are some of the most expensive. You can't just insta-kill a stack of them. Stacking here complicates things, but I'd be willing to bet the developers haven't seriously considered the situation rather than saying it is as intended. My added comment was I get that aircraft are vulnerable when on the ground, but not instantly so by moving a unit onto an aerodrome's hex. Which Oof. I suppose you could tie it to a unit that had multiple moves, like three or four moves. I don't know. Maybe if it was a sufficiently advanced unit, then maybe it could move and go ahead and do that on the same turn. It's really difficult to represent tactical anything in the Civs timescale, even late game, a turn is a year. So, like, when you're doing like two years or more, just a lot of wars are fought in the scale of what would be like max five turns in game. Mm. <laughs> making this very difficult to abstract to reality in any capacity. My problem with giving air units hit points is that it makes taking an aerodrome, like, untenable. It takes so long. Like, you would have to commit five units just to take the stupid thing. I would rather see them get kicked out, if eligible, to somewhere else. Or alternatively, maybe the planes get scrambled to just attack the unit, and then they die. So they deal damage, but then they are gone. They would, like, kill the unit in many cases, which would be asinine. <laughs> you well, then it's a suicide run, I guess. But You should be protecting your stuff. Like, I think the best implementation is to make the planes run away so long as they have an eligible place to run. You just go to the nearest eligible place. And if you are actually out of eligible places, then they die. But you're kind of dead anyway if you have no eligible places for your planes. <laughs> like, there's not much of you left then. To be clear, my position wasn't that the aerodrome would have hit points like a encampment, but it was that a unit moves onto that hex, and then it needs to be able to stay there, and then on the next turn it could go ahead and pillage, which would hopefully give you the chance to realize if I don't get rid of this unit on my turn, then they're going to go ahead and pillage, and then in that case, all of the airplanes were destroyed, whereas Majin's position was, nope, as soon as you move that unit onto that hex, and it can happen on that turn, then that instantly destroys any and all of the airplanes that are currently on that hex. Well, one uh, thing- I mean, I could see a pillage requirement. Now, I don't know that you have to always wait a turn, like, that's a special rule, but pillage requirement would make it more challenging to insta-give the planes, which is okay. One thing, though, to your previous point, Phil, is that there is also the issue of airstrips, So if you build an airstrip far away from your territory as like a forward operating base for your airplanes, an enemy unit moves on to that, then would the airplanes just automatically be transported to your nearest city or would they be destroyed because there's nothing within their range to retreat to? Ooh, I'd be okay with either as long as it's consistent. Well, how'd you get them there (laughs) if they don't have any? Well, they could have moved from an aircraft carrier 
okay, you know, across right. the sea, and then you you move them off the carrier onto an airstrip that's built on another continent, so that you can push forward further into that continent. And then, since then, the aircraft carrier has moved away, or you've built a string of airstrips to keep moving the airplanes further inland. Okay, you know, there's I a lot of ways you. that that I can happen. You. So here's my take on it. I'd be okay with the planes being destroyed in a scenario where they have no eligible place they could rebase. But for the sake of simplicity and not having the game do a bunch of complicated checks, I could live with them just rebasing somewhere else, too. I mean, that's what happens with great people. So it's not like it's entirely unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah, I I would be okay with either. I would prefer the game handle it. If you can't rebase them, they're done. But it's not so critical that I would take hits to performance for it or have weird bugs introduced by uh, trying to enforce that. And if anyone is wondering, in particular, why Phil is saying this now and did not say it on episode 285, that's because he was not on the panel for episode 285. He was absent, and Jason wasn't here either. Okay, someone's saying, how come we didn't say this last year, Phil? Well, he wasn't here to say it. <laughs> and it wasn't even a set topic, so even if Phil went back and looked over the topics list, plus the fact that it only got even released now, there would be no way unless I or... Mackie or Matt or one of the two guests that we had on that episode said anything to Phil, you'd have no way of knowing. Yeah, that'd be pretty unlikely. It's like, all right, Phil, settle this dispute for us. Like, either of you would do that. (laughs) (laughs) You tell good jokes. (laughs) I mean, the only way, like, one of you would pull that is if you knew what my answer would be and it was the same as yours. That's that's the only (laughs) scenario I could picture you doing it. Harp on Civ Fanatics forums posted a topic unfair trading what is this madness basically talking about how you go to the AI to sell a luxury and they give you like one gold for it and then you want to buy a luxury from them and they ask for like all of your cities and your relics and all of your gold per turn I'm exaggerating a little bit but trading with the AI it's uh, oftentimes very one sided yep I think they just do that to mask the AI's inability to evaluate, generally speaking. So it just over-asks all the time. It's a little silly, though. I hardly ever trade with the AI in Civ 6. In Civ 5, I was doing it all of the time. But I just, I know I can't get anything worthwhile from them. Like, maybe at the very beginning of the game, I'll go to, like, the first couple of AIs that I meet, and I'll sell them, like, my one copy of my starting luxuries, just because I don't need the amenity yet, and the gold is better to have. But after the medieval era, I completely forget that I can even do that, until one of them pops up and tries to buy one of my relics for a ransom. But I'm like, no, I really want that relic. Yeah, you'd think that, at least on, like, decent terms, they would do one-for-one trades more often, but it just doesn't seem to happen in practice. And the fact that you have no way of seeing what luxuries they currently have access to you don't know if they're giving you a lowball offer because they already have that and having another copy of it isn't going to help them or if they just don't like you or if maybe their amenities already too high i do find myself when i do try selling resources clicking on each resource one at a time to find out what they'll offer me for it and then you do the what will you give me for this thing and they have like some silly ridiculous set of stuff that they're willing to give you and i have to cancel out every one of them and then try putting in my own stuff that's you know of equivalent value 
changing the gold per turn by one gold at a time until I get to the point yep. where they go from accepting to rejecting and then changing it back to the value. Because what will you give me for this never gives me a thing that I feel is useful. And plus, yeah, but it in- doesn't give you what you can get based on trial and error. Right. You can no, usually which is get more. all kinds of bark. Like that's objectively trash implementation. Yeah. Because <laughs> what they're giving you is not what they actually would give you for it. So like it's a it's false representation of the game state on top of the sheer annoyance of clicking that many times when it really should not be necessary. I totally get that if I have excess wine and Jason, you have excess wine and both of us go to UFIL. And we're saying, what will you give me for this? If you have a better diplomatic relation with Jason, whether that's either through positive things that Jason has done or just because he hasn't done the negative things that I've done, it would make sense that you would offer more to Jason than you would to me. Correct. Unless you were really so just like, oh, you know, I mean, that makes sense. But the AI does not seem to be taking that into consideration. It's been suggested in this thread that one of the factors has to do with the agenda and whatever civilization you happen to be, if this is your civilization's agenda, even though you are not that AI leader, the AI knows that and treats you accordingly. So if your agenda is in conflict with theirs, then they're going to lowball your value. And these right. things should be factors. Just like okay, Aztec, if you're offering them a unique copy of Luxury, perhaps they value that a little bit more. Okay, whatever. I guess you could have it represent a valuation by the AI, but at minimum, we should be able to tell what they have and so that we're not wasting our time. And what would you give me for this? should represent the max you can get for that item. And maybe also be able to see that your current diplomatic modifiers and gender conflicts and stuff like that while you're in the trade screen rather than having to cancel out and then look at the little relationship panel and then go back into the trade. Or in the case of the AI coming to you for a trade deal, you have to just reject the deal and then on your turn, remember to open up the diplomacy screen and check all that stuff. Yeah. And it has been seen that some people going back and for an autosave, for example, or a manual save, turn rolls over, the AI contacts you, you go ahead and you accept that deal, but then they try it again, you reject that deal, you go in and you decide, yeah, that's a good deal. You manually go in and ask the AI for the exact same thing and they tell you to go away. <laughs> yeah. Or even worse, we've all, and we've also talked about those cases before where the AI offers you a deal and you say accept and you're, they're like, no, I can't accept that. And I know we've mentioned that before. Mm, yes. And I could totally understand, say, having tied into some kind of overlay, and again, this would tie into both the UI and the mechanics, that if you have a delegation with that civilization, you would have a better chance of knowing, perhaps, what would you give me. If you're just meeting them for the first time, maybe you don't even see that as an option, besides it not even working at all or working as it should be, as, as intended. You get that diplomatic... And then maybe it doesn't give you an, an exact value, but you get an advice to say, well, we think that they'll accept something within this range. No, I'm going to shoot that down now. If you're allowing trades at all, you should just have that there. That way you don't need trial and error to negotiate a basic deal. This is just a question of player experience, because what happens ultimately is that there's a value that the AI is willing to make a trade. And if you go past that, it won't make it. If you stay at or below it, it will make the trade. Well, as long as that's the case, what what you'll give me for this should be at the maximum threshold of what the AI will give consistently, regardless of game player. If they're trading with you at all, that should work. Well, Dan's idea could maybe work if the diplomatic visibility actually does change those thresholds. So basically, okay, it yes. would at an abstract level, it would be like not only is the AI willing to give you 
this much for that trade, but you know they're willing to give you that much for that trade, and they know it because they know you have delegations and spies and stuff like that, so they give you that much for the trade. Otherwise, they're like, oh, we can get away with offering them less because they won't know any better. Okay, but in that case, you would still be able to use the button, and you would just get different values based on the situation. Right. Uh, so that based would on... just be another factor, like uh, how many copies they have or whatever else. Just yet right. another weight for the AI. Yeah, that could get behind that, sure. The other thing is we only see the resources that are showing up when we're talking to an AI are those that they're producing. They may be importing that excess luxury that you have from somebody else, which is like, well, how come you're not going to give me anything for this, but I offer you this other excess luxury, and it's going to give you four amenity, but you're willing to pay that much more for it. It's not like in Civilization Five where there was the, hey, there's a quest like from a city-state for you to gain access to this particular resource. Okay, maybe that's why then the AI would be willing to pay more for one over something else. But we don't know what other deals that they have. Not saying that we should be able to tell, although I suppose if you were you know, really friends with them, you could know that, hey, you know they're getting this from this person for this amount. Or if you've got spies. Or if you've got spies. But at least know it's like, okay, you don't have that domestically, but you're importing it. They're probably not going to be interested in another copy, so then you're not going to waste your time putting that one forward. Or at the very least, when the AI rejects the deal, they could tell you that that's the reason they're rejecting it. Hey, we've already got that luxury. I mean, that's trial and error still. I'd rather UI tell you that up front, but just providing player feedback. Yeah. I think it's unacceptable to like, just not represent that they have a deal for it. You don't need to give details or anything, but like just save time. Because if you can determine it through trial and error on the Diplo screen, there's literally no doubt, no upside to hiding it or making it have to be learned through trial and error. Yeah. It's just a strict downgrading to gameplay with no yeah. upside if you do it that way. In the thread itself, there was definitely some back and forth about don't waste our times with these nonsense offers. The AI pops up. It's an overlay. It's in between turns. you got to accept it or reject it. Why would I possibly accept this where you're getting something from me for very little money or you're saying, hey, would you like this excess luxury of mine for a ridiculous amount of gold up front or gold per turn? Go away. And some people have pointed out in the thread, a traveling Canuck would say, you know, they're not nonsense offers. They're a key opportunity to restore relations with an AI that views you as a warmonger, as an example. So I get that you may want to take a deal that economically may not be to your benefit, but maybe militaristically it is to your benefit. But that also comes then back to, rather than having it as an overlay, tell me at the start of the turn that, you know, in the little dialogue on the right-hand side, that there's a little icon that says, you have a trade. And you need to respond to this. And maybe if you try to roll over the turn and you haven't responded to that yet, you haven't dismissed it, you know, like a right click, no, I'm not interested, then it would prompt you, hey, you still have a deal in order to do that. Because then it also gives you the chance to hopefully then have a look at what that deal is, tying into something that you were saying, Jason, which is I've still got this deal open on part of the screen, but now I've got the overlay of my diplomatic relations with that person. And okay, what other luxuries do I have? What else is going on in terms of the deals and our history? To then be able to make an informed decision. That would be interesting. Because I can totally see you wanting to take a deal that's not economically viable. I wouldn't want the AI to not offer that. But I would want there to be a connection, just like I would like the AI to be willing to accept the deal that may not be economically vile for them. But I just may value the fact that I'm getting 15 gold per turn for this luxury that they could get from somebody else for a fraction of the cost, but they don't have to worry about me raffle stomping their face because I've got this huge army on their border. That's going to be hard on an AI, though, at a macro level. Like <laughs> to, to make an AI make those decisions uh, trade-wise for, and in apply them for to diplomatic planning 
that <laughs> that's a big ask in contrast to like the ui working that, that's a huge ask actually Oh, there's no question. But I figure while we're looking at trying to fix this, why we may, well, we can work to make it better at the same time. <laughs> Shoot for the stars. <laughs> exactly. Well, one of these things has many proven examples in quality uh, game genres where that you know they, they don't have terrible competition. The other one I've never seen in any game ever. So <laughs> there's a pretty big step there. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> I think the underlying idea of just putting the trade deals as like a notification that you handle on your turn so that you can look at all the overlays and make inf- an informed decision, I think that by itself would be an improvement. And that should be the case with pretty much all diplomatic interactions, except, I guess, for declaring war, because that happens on another player's turn. Because that's yeah. the way it works in multiplayer, right? If yep. two human players send a trade agreement uh-huh. with each other, you just get a little notification. If the turn rolls over, that notification is still there and you accept or reject it and it happens on the next turn. So just do that in the single player game, too. Like it's already implemented. They just have to make the single player work like the multiplayer because the multiplayer system, I think, works fine. Yeah, sure. There's a one turn delay between proposing a deal and finding out whether it was accepted or rejected. But I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, instead of the mid-turn rollover, hey, want to trade artifacts? Hey, want to trade artifacts? Hey, want to trade artifacts? Did they fix that allies can join war you now already? No, allies can still declare war on you, but what happens is a betrayal emergency pops up and the whole world can then go all berserk against them for betraying. Okay. Except in reality, what happens is you're the only one who accepts the emergency and everyone else rejects <laughs> it. And yeah. it's it's no big deal because you can't conference with the other players or try to bribe them into accepting the emergency. And you have no idea if they're going to accept it before you accept or reject. So well, you might as yeah. well accept it if you can win since you're going to be at war with them anyway. Right. But if you are dependent on having another ally to help you in that, not knowing whether or not that ally is going to be there kind of makes it like so that you should just by default reject it. Because if you fail the emergency the other player gets like thousands of gold or something like that. So you don't want to just accept it and then hope you can do it. You want to accept it because you are confident you're going to be able to do it. And not knowing whether or not you're going to have the support of your potential allies is just incredibly frustrating. By default, I reject unless I know I can single-handedly complete that emergency. Yeah, that's true. That's crummy. And then I expect to have to single-handedly do it because the AI, you know, even if they accept, a lot of times they just flake out. Like I had a game earlier this week where I think the Cree went to an emergency with me against France to liberate Jerusalem. And the Cree just sent a bunch of catapults and a couple of melee units and Jerusalem bombarded and killed all the melee units. And the Cree didn't bother sending any more melee units. They just kept using their catapults to bombard Jerusalem back down to zero hit points. And then I basically came in with one knight or something and took the city like two turns before the emergency ended because the Cree weren't doing anything to actually resolve it. Yeah, well, I mean, based on that, even if they would join, you just have to assume they'll do nothing because... <laughs> And that's that's been a consistent problem. It's there for a long time. Like AI allies joining wars are rarely significant by the time they physically do anything in the war. And like, even ex- in Civ 4, it was kind of weak, but at least they could serve as a distraction. Yeah. Ironically, even, since then, it's been rough. Ironically, I've actually found that city states are better war allies than full civilizations because if if one enemy unit is visible to that city state, that city state will send its entire army over Swarm. that direction. Yeah, yeah, and if and if it's one of those city states that has like 15, 20 units early in the game, that's a big friggin' deal. It's true. Mm. 
AI double attacks from Sershi. I'm starting to see this since installing Rise and Fall. Two neutrally disposed AIs, often across the map from me and sometimes each other, would simultaneously declare war on me out of the blue. Probably joint war, question mark. It's a formal war, but neither denounces me beforehand. They would then proceed to not do anything actually warlike, other than maybe sending some errant unit like a caravel that was exploring nearby. After a while, some declare peace. Some insist on having reparations for peace until I send a couple of units to kill some of theirs. Otherwise, they refuse to settle without paying me money, so this no-contact war can continue forever. What gives? I've never seen this before and haven't seen any reports of this, but for me it happens reliably three or more times in a long game. Not that they specify what a long game is. <laughs> well, hopefully the uh, patch that's going to fix Joint Wars will at least alleviate this, if not solve it. Hopefully. Hopefully. I do find it interesting that the two AIs that were neutrally disposed to him, often across the map from me, and sometimes each other would simultaneously declare war, the conversation kind of spilled out that, well, it sounds like the one AI was bribed into the war based on something. I'm going to give you this luxury. I'm going to give you this gold per turn. I'm going to give you this gold up front. And Bitterman in the thread says, no one would be upset if it were called bribing, but Joint Wars sounds more like two allies fighting a common enemy, which is almost never the case. Now, using the term allies here, this is not necessarily, of course, that they're in a formal alliance. They just declared a joint war against you. (laughs) I would like to see something where if you want to send a message to that civilization, and of course, I hear war, I think, and I think most of us think armed conflict, but a war could be economic. I think, well, I know I'm referencing the United Nations here in Civilization Four, but the notion of, no, I'm not going to declare a war on you, but yeah, I'm going to agree with this resolution that we're going to have an economic sanction, and I'm not going to trade with you. I mean, certainly that is obviously the end result with joint war, which is, I have no intention of taking over your civ, and we've done this as well. I think most of us as human players have done this. The AI says, hey, you want to joint war with this person? Well, they're either somewhere else where they can't reach me, so I don't have to worry about their military strength, and I'm pretty militaristically powerful, but I'm not sending all my units over there. But hey, this AI is going to give me this luxury and this gold per turn. Sure, I don't care. I don't have to worry so much about, you know, getting the the warmonger penalty. I'm not going to be engaged in this at all. That's fine. I'm just going to sit back and collect my money and be done with it. Especially now that you get your trader units back instead of them just automatically being destroyed when you declare war on someone you were trading with. Yeah, and seeing as how we now have the expansion of the alliance system in Rise and Fall where you can specify the type of alliance, economic, military, culture, religious, then maybe it can be, okay, let's go to war with this person, quote-unquote war, Is it going to be an armed conflict? And we go ahead and we declare that. And then, I know this also goes to the programming of the AI, that they actually try to do something. And I know sometimes when the AI tries to do something militaristically, it's not necessarily mm, that spectacular. But it's just like, is that all they were doing was being bribed into the war? Because now that I'm in the war and they've declared war on me, I can go and I can start taking cities, even though if you've been declared on in a joint war and you start taking cities, you an even worse more margo penalty than if you had declared a joint war yourself, Cassius Belly or otherwise. But quite honestly, let's distinguish between why one or both of these civs are going to war with you. Is it to actually attack you and take your cities or get rid of your carpet of doom? Or is it that they're trying to crush you economically or culturally? So... If it's economic, not going to trade with you. If it's religious, not going to allow you to bring religious units into the borders. They're going to be stopped. And if you don't like that, then you can go ahead and declare war. And then we'll get into armed conflict, as opposed to something that has the same effect, but doesn't make you scratching your head and saying, why would the AI agree to this? It's not in their best interest, and 
this is not really a joint war. This is just a Cold War that is not doing them any good, not doing you any good, and it's just completely pointless and a waste of time. Yeah, it would be nice to have some kind of intermediate between being at peace and being at war, where you are on hostile terms and you are like actively not trading with each other or you know stuff like that. I think that would be a, a pretty good addition. But yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, I can understand if one of the AIs like actually does not like you and they're bribing someone else into a joint war. But the example in this thread is two neutral AIs. So like, I guess the bigger question is why are neutral AIs being so aggressive towards wars that they are not going to do anything about? It's one thing for them to be able to say, neither of us are particularly powerful, but we could both increase our respective power if we take out this weaker civilization. Or even, you know what, individually we can't take on this bully, but if the two of us take on this bully, then we can actually do some damage to them, and we're going to go and take them out militaristically. Okay, then see that effect. Right. So I think it's a combination of, yeah, it is what the artificial intelligence is doing or not doing, but then it's also a mechanic thing that maybe the only reason they declared a joint war is because they want you to stop trading with them, and there's no other way to do that than to declare war on you. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. yeah, the AI is not intelligent enough to do what the human players do. It's like, sure, I'll declare war on them and do absolutely nothing just for the bonus points, diplomatically at least, you know? I mean, if that's what the AI is doing, then I kind of feel like that's actually kind of smart on their part. I just wish the game would tell us that that's what they're doing so that it doesn't just look foolish when someone declares war on you from across the map and then never sends a single military unit. And I mean, some people want it to be called bribe rather than a joint war. I don't mind it being called necessarily a joint war, and then they do absolutely nothing. But I guess what I mean by that is, yeah, we know what the purpose of the war is. It's an economic war. Right. It doesn't even necessarily be a sanction. It's just, don't expect any troops. A blockade. Yeah, it's a blockade. Just add a blockade feature where you just cancel all trade routes. And it's not a war. There's no military action. They don't have to have units. They don't have to send units. They're just cutting off trade. Maybe you can't even go into diplomacy and trade anything with them other than asking them to rescind the blockade. You know, after, say, X number of turns after, like, we now have with another formal war declaration. Right. And then you can declare a war like the Mongols did into the Iranian region because yeah, they someone... disrespected their merchants. Right. Someone blockading or embargoing you or whatever should give you a casus belli against them. So you can escalate it into a war if you want. And maybe it should be a situation where if two other civs do an embargo against you and you do decide to use your Casus Belli to declare war, you have to use that Casus Belli to declare war on both of them. You can't use the Casus Belli to pick off just the weaker one. It might get a little bit complicated to code, but by rule, I think you wouldn't want a situation where two weaker civs do this embargo against you because they want you to stop trading and they want to hurt your economy, and then you're able to just turn around and declare war on one of them because they're both weaker and squash them, and then declare war on the other later and squash them. You could go ahead and declare war on one of them, but then you, you should risk the strong likelihood that the other one is also going to turn around and declare war on you because, hey, we told you to stop sending trade routes to us, and you wouldn't do it even before we get to an economic sanction. Like, just stop sending trade routes to us, another diplomatic contact. No, I'm not going to do that. Fine, you're sanctioned. We asked you not to. Now we're telling you not to. And then the other A says, fine, you don't want my trade routes? Fine, I'll make my quote-unquote own routes into your land. I'm declaring war on the one party. And then I could see the other party then having the option to say, okay, am I going to join this or am I not going to join this? And if you choose not to join this, then maybe you also find yourself at war with that other sieve in addition to the other one. This just all still sounds like a big ask for the AI. No, it's true. If this is a weaker AI, is the AI ever going to be willing to declare that retaliatory war, right? Because 
they're in a weaker position, which means that the AI valuation is going to say, no, we shouldn't declare war. So to make it simpler, it should just be you would declare war on both if you're the person being embargoed. Yeah, and I could probably tie that into the whole economic alliance alliance part of it. Yeah. If you're economically allied, then you would have the embargoes and the war possibilities with your ally. So you wouldn't have to oh, worry that's about true, it as yeah. much. Yeah. And obviously, if you're an economic ally with someone and then they go and embargo you, like there should be repercussions for them for having broken, you know, that should also count as a betrayal. Yeah, yeah it should be a betrayal. It should destroy the alliance kind of a thing and give them bad diplo karma. Right. And give you Cassus Belli's and maybe trigger one of those emergency things. Yes. And give you negative diplomatic modifiers with everyone else in the game. Whether or not they act on it, though, would depend on their relations with you otherwise. But if it was just, oh, okay, I already hated you, and now you don't even treat your so-called allies well, all right, that's it. Yeah. I'm done. Now I'm going to war with you. Now I'm declaring my own economic embargo against you. Then it becomes meaningful choices and consequences for your actions. Mm-hmm. That you can also figure out, and the timing is so that, oh... Okay, yep, I've done this. Here's the retaliation. The communication is very clear. The timing makes sense. The purpose is understood. Away we go. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candice Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call Call in in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44121-288-7659. That's 44121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. So I guess that will do it for Polycast episode 306, which means there's only 694 to go. I have been your guest co-host because Dan ran out of people to invite, Uber Markler, and I was joined today by Dan Quick. The sun is shining. Mega Bears fan. Hitting the snooze button now. Makalua. Well, snooze button or coffee button, I gotta pick one. <laughs> Both? Uh, At the same risky. time. There is this thing called decaf, Mackie. Whoa. I've heard of it. Yeah. It's like gluten-free no, 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 no. I understand the need for gluten-free cookies. I mostly don't understand the need for gluten-free... Not gluten-free. Gluten-free, <laughs> gluten-free caffeine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Solution, don't dunk your cookie in the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what you do. So the biscotti's for. Yeah. Oh, biscotti. Oh, wow. All these fancy foods, I tell you what. <laughs> Are you sure he's from an actual country? I'm... Yeah, really. Where, where, where is this? What uncultured yes. swine is he? <laughs> and bringing up the rear, as always, the BN team. All right. Since we won't cover it on the show, you can check the ebook for the surrounding pound strategies. <sighs> And lastly, yeah. <clears throat> wow. 
getting to that, Dan. Gee. There's like two <laughs> seconds of silence and Dan jumps in. Well, no, no awkward silence. No. Hello. Get out of it. <laughs> the user interface is a giant bug that must be squished. Therefore, no user interface. Fixed. Working as intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been yeah, we went, a we went significantly longer than usual. Yeah, we Dan will like, have some things have to archive. Apparently, Dan has work to do. <laughs> oh, my. <sighs> uh, that's why it's been 100 episodes since you've been invited back on this show. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Record date April 21st, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.